But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you, are, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as joiners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when, you, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we are going to keep going this week with our series on our vision values. This is the time of year where people are kind of wrapping up their summer travels, but also there are a lot of people coming into the city and moving here and checking out churches. And so we like to take this time to remind everyone what we're here for, uh, what it means for us to be a church in this community. And so a couple weeks ago, we talked about the gospel being at the core of everything that we do and the driving force behind our church. And last week, we talked about our our prayerful dependence upon the Lord, that we expect that He's the one that's going to work in this church and not just our own abilities and our own efforts. And this week, uh, we are going to do something a little ambitious, I think. We are going to take three of our core values and just cram them all into one week uh, because we have more core values than there are Sundays in a month, and uh, we got to start Daniel pretty soon. So here's what we're doing. Today, we are talking about uh, our value of being a living community that we want to be a church that's a living community. And as that plays out in this community, we, we want to see our church be a neighborhood-focused church and a multi-ethnic church. Um, but how you should really think about this sermon is uh, we're trying to answer a, a simple question. What should this church be like? In the day-to-day, what should this church be like? And that's an important subject. That's something we need to find an answer to because if you have been in America for any period of time, uh, it's likely that you have some notion of the church. It's likely that you have some idea of what the church is like, and nine times out of ten, that notion is not really based on Scripture. It's not really based on how the Bible describes the church. For most people, church is the equivalent of organized religion. That's what we think of when we consider the church. But in Scripture, the church is a living community of people, a people who have been chosen and set apart by God. The church is a powerful new identity that that deep down answers longings of our hearts, that deep down is something we are all seeking to be a part of. And when the church is living that way, when the church is a living community, then it is powerful. It has the power to transform individual lives, but not just that, to transform entire communities. And so I want us to talk about that this morning. I want us to to get to the bottom of of what it means to be a living community. And in this passage, we're going to be going off this mostly. Uh, We're going to see that a living community is something that is necessary for our faith. A living community is something that is powerful in our community, and a living community is what we're here for. So a living community is necessary, it's powerful, and it's what we're here for. Um, 
that's where we're going. That's how we're going to attack this. Um, so let's, let's just get into it. We're a church plant. I think I've mentioned that. Uh, if you're not in the Christian culture, that is kind of how we refer to being a startup. Uh, we're just kind of in the, the early years of this church where, you know, Park Street downtown is over 200 years old. We are still under three. And so, uh, we're, we're, we're just getting started. And if you look at the trends, this is kind of an interesting concept, starting a church. If you do any demographic research, if you talk to people uh, in the city, you will quickly realize that that church, it's not a growth industry right now, right? The, the, the trends show us that the church is, is on the downside. Uh, two weeks ago, I met up with the Catholic priest who oversees a lot of the congregations in Jamaica Plain and Roxbury, and he told me this tale, the saga of the Catholic Church in our community over the past 20 years or so. He, he described how uh, essentially the church has collapsed, that in the late 90s, there, the congregations were full. There were five big Catholic churches that could sustain themselves, and now there's only three, and he's the only priest over all of them. Because the congregations have gotten so small that they can only afford one pastor. And it's not just them. It's the Protestant church, right? It's, it's all churches. Every couple of years, the Pew Research Center releases the statistics that show our city, our state, is firmly in the least religious areas of America. New Englanders are leaving the church. And so to most people... In our community, when you tell them you're starting a new church, it's, it's like telling them you're opening a new blockbuster video. Right? <laughs> they don't necessarily see the need, right? Today, Boston is what uh, people call a post-Christian society. That means there's no expectation that people will attend church. There's no cultural pressure that you're going to wake up on Sunday morning. There are in fact, hundreds of different worldviews that make up this community. And Christian values, the, the Christian worldview is usually kind of on the margins. It's, it's more on the fringe rather than a central guiding force of our society. And so there's some practical things that flow out of that. If you start to think of our neighborhood that way, it means that we can no longer assume that people have any interest in what's happening here. We can no longer assume that people care at all about what is going on in this room from 10.30 to noon on a Sunday morning. In fact, we should probably assume that they have no interest whatsoever. So if all we are trying to do, if all our church is trying to do is put on a good service, maybe we'll draw some Christians. Maybe we'll get some, some new people when they move into our neighborhood, but... Society at large is going to remain outside of our doors. Our culture has changed. The world around us has changed. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. And that's what I want to talk about right here. This new reality that we live in is not something new for the church. This new reality, in fact, is much more like the biblical world where the church began to thrive. So if we're going to thrive, 
If we're going to live in a community that, that has changed, if, we're gonna, if we are going to be the church here, we need to rediscover our identity. We need to find out what the church is supposed to be. So what do I mean? Well, let's look at the passage again. Um, if you've got your Bibles, open them back up. We're going to be looking at them. Uh, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses. we'll start with verse 9 and 10. This is a letter written by the Apostle Peter to a group of Christians living in what is now present-day Turkey. It's a mixture of, of uh, Jewish converts and Gentile converts. Uh, it's it's a, a mixture of, of people from, from different places. And here's what he says to them. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If we're just going to step back and try to make some basic observations about who Paul, who Peter is talking to here, I think there's one thing that jumps out really quickly. Did you notice? When he addresses the church, he is not talking about a place. He's talking about a people. For Peter, the church was not just some meeting that happened for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. It was not a location. It was not a building. It was not a service. It wasn't a certain preacher or a certain set of songs. It wasn't some club that people joined and belonged to, but it was a family. It was a people. It was a chosen nation with their own identity. According to Scripture, and not just in this book, but all over Scripture, you see the narrative that when someone becomes a Christian, they don't join the church. They become the church. When someone puts their faith in Christ, they become a part of the people of God. That's what, that's what we see. Steve Timmis and Tim Chester, they wrote a couple of books on the church. Um, one is called Total Church. One's called Everyday Church. Uh, they're awesome books, and I go back to them a lot. I just spent some time in them this week, so I'm going to reference them a little bit during this sermon. I hope maybe we can all get a chance to read through them at some time. But um, Steve Timmis, he summed up uh, the gospel this way. He says, one of the ways we can sum up the gospel is this. Christ died for a people, and we are saved when by faith we become a part of the people for whom Christ died. That's a really different way of, of thinking about your faith, right? That it is this corporate faith, that Christ has died for his people. But how is that any different from what we normally see? How is that any different from the way church is right now? Well, uh, Listen to this. This is Acts chapter 2. It's the story of the founding of the first church. It happens right after Pentecost, right after Peter preaches this really powerful sermon. Thousands of people come to faith, and then they start the church. And here's what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts. And praising God, they had favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The description we see of that church is something much deeper than services, right? Now, it wasn't less than services. It says they were going to the temple regularly. They were worshiping communally. But it says beyond that, what were they doing? Well, they were in each other's homes. They were in each other's lives. They were going to worship. They were praying together. But they were also just eating together. And just hanging out, just doing normal stuff. When I keep using the term living community, it's just the best thing I can think of. It's not, but it's not some new strategy that I'm trying to put on people. It's not some trendy catchphrase. I'm just trying to say, this is what the church is supposed to be. This is what the church has always been. Not a group of people who get dressed up once a week and sing some songs but it is a family of believers who are fundamentally defined by their communal connection to Jesus Christ. It's a chosen people who share their lives, who grieve together, who rejoice together, who carry each other's burdens. When there's a need, they try to meet it. Who do simple things who babysit each other's kids, who open up their homes, who invite their friends over to watch a TV show with them. People who worship together, who preach the gospel to one another, and not just for an hour a week, but for every moment of every day. Being a living community is the church. It's not some kind of optional strategy that we could try to adopt. It's a necessity. That's what I'm trying to say here. Being a living community is a necessity. And it's what we have to become if we want to reach the neighborhood beyond these walls. And and that brings us to the next point. Being a living community is a powerful thing. I invite people to church a lot. Probably not a surprise, right? (laughs) I'm a pastor. I, I want people to come here. kind of have uh, committed a lot to, to, to seeing people come into this service. Um, I find most of the time when I make an invitation, what I get could probably be described as indifference. Right? We live in a polite community. People aren't going to say mean things to my face usually. And so I say, hey, you know, we have a service this week. Maybe it's a special one. Maybe it's the fall kickoff. Hey, we got a a church service. I'd love for you to come. And usually I hear somebody say, hmm, you know, that sounds interesting. Which really means, that does not sound interesting. (laughs) Right? They say, oh, I'll think about that. Which really means, I will literally not think about that again. (laughs) What I hear most, though, is people say, maybe I'll be there. Which means, There is no chance I will be caught dead there, right? Now, think about that experience. 
Maybe you've had a similar one. But think about how different that experience of inviting someone to a service is from what we just read in the book of Acts. It says that these people were praising God and they had favor with all people and people were being added to their number daily. Or look at this, our text, back in, back in 1 Peter. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. They'll see your good deeds and glorify God. Did you notice those reactions? That there is a sense here that when the church is seen by the world, even a world that is hostile, right? That's the environment they lived in. Even a world that's hostile to the church will be attracted to the church. You might have also noticed that neither of those situations described some evangelism program, right? It wasn't about people going and knocking on doors and saying, hey, you guys want to be a part of this. But we see that simply by being the church, it draws people to glorify God. It draws people from the bigger society to join with us and glorify God. That sounds really cool, but how is that possible? How could that become a reality? Why is this type of church so special? Well, I think we see here, it's because of two things. First, this kind of church, I don't even like saying it that way, the church. (laughs) When we are the church, it displays the presence of God in the world at large. Peter's telling these people how to behave among the Gentiles. And that just means those who don't believe what you believe. It means the other people that that don't share your values. And when he gives that instruction, you know what assumption he's making? That they'll be among the Gentiles, right? There's an assumption that they're going to be around people who don't share their beliefs. That they're going to actually be present in the world. In Acts, it's the same thing. It says the, the, the church had favor with all people. That means that somehow people could see them. People were aware of what they were doing and how they were living. They weren't just some building with a door that was closed and no one knew what was going on inside. For us to be that kind of church, it's going to be impossible if the church is only here. If this is all our church amounts to, this won't ever happen. But if the church is a living community, if the church is not just Sundays, but it's seven days a week, then we have to be visible to the world. Okay, don't, I don't want you to misunderstand. I hope I'm making this clear. I'm not suggesting we start having seven days worth of events, right? I'm not suggesting that we have more programs. I'm not suggesting we have a bunch more activities. In fact, I think it's the opposite that I'm suggesting. Because if we become this kind of a church, then we don't need an evangelism program, right? We don't need a soup kitchen night. We don't need a discipleship night because we're going to be doing that stuff. This is the stuff that should happen in the daily life of the church. It happens when we are sharing a dinner table and talking about our challenges that we're facing. 
It happens at the playground while we're letting our kids play with each other and, and other people in the neighborhood. It happens when we're watching a football game or when we meet up for coffee. And this is part of the reason why we have this neighborhood focus in our church. It's important for us to have that value. Like We're, we're Christ the King, J.P. Roxbury. We're part of a, a network of churches that are all planted in different neighborhoods around Boston. And the reason we want to do that is so that we can actually be a community in this big city. Um, I'll just make this disclaimer. You know, I know a lot of you don't actually live in these two neighborhoods, and that's okay. I'm happy that you're here. Anybody is welcome to be a part of our church. But I am convinced that if we are going to, to really reach this world, what we need is not another service. But we need a church that can be visible. We need a church that can be seen in a place. And not like in a big flashy way, right? I'm not talking about the pastor and the first lady on a billboard while you drive down the highway, right? I'm talking about seeing the church in very small ways. You know, seeing them in the schools, in the grocery store, in the library, at, at the park, passing by your brother in Christ while you're on your way somewhere else, <laughs> showing love to one another, caring for one another and in daily life. If we want to do more than just attract the Christians who come here, if we want to do more than just pull in people who have our same values that move to Boston, then we have to go out into the world. We can't just keep inviting people to come here. Because <laughs> the world's not going to come. But when we are living visible lives in the community, when we are loving and serving one another, when we are talking about Jesus, just talking about it, <laughs> around the course of a, a normal day, when we're reminding one another of the gospel and how it applies in the moment, when we're inviting our friends, our non-Christian friends, to just participate in what we're doing, there is real power in that. There's power there. I heard one pastor say that the greatest Thing a city needs is for Christians to commit their lives, Christians to raise their families, Christians to plant their roots, and just say, I'm going to be here. I'm going to work in the businesses. I'm going to teach in the schools. I'm going to send my children to the schools. I'm going to participate in the PTA. I'm going to join the, the local artists club. I'm going to you know, join a running club. I'm going to be here. Christians who are just willing to, to live a life that testifies to God's grace in a world that doubts it, will display God's presence in a way that no church service ever will. So that's the first thing. A living church, it puts God's presence on display. And then secondly, I would say this kind of community also puts the power of God on display. It shows the power of God to the world. If you saw in verse 9, Peter starts out by calling this church a chosen race. Now, when we hear the word chosen race, uh, we don't tend to think of good things, right? That's, that's not a lot of a terminology that we use very often. But uh, 
Peter brings it into focus pretty quickly in the next line. Because, as I told you a minute ago, he's writing to a diverse group of people, both Jews and Gentiles, people who had come to a common faith despite having deep racial and cultural lines drawn between them. He says, you didn't used to be a people, but now you are a people. You people that that are coming from all over, you are now a chosen race. Once you were not a people, but now you're a people. If there's any one verse that gets me excited about being a church in this neighborhood, it's that one. Our church, it's located in a a weird place. It's a place where neighborhoods kind of bump up against each other. It's a place where where cultures bump into each other. It's a place where people from, from different races and classes all bump up into each other. And we're a neighborhood that I think most of us who live here, we really love it dearly. It's got so many great things to offer. Uh, it's a neighborhood that, that values diversity, right? It's a neighborhood that deva- values and, and celebrates our unity. It's a neighborhood where a lot of people try to find common ground. But in the church, we become a people. It's not just common ground. In the church, we are uniquely called to become one people. A friend of mine the other day uh, was telling me that you know, there's nothing really magical, there's nothing special or unique about diversity. There are plenty of diverse clubs, right? There are plenty of diverse businesses. There are plenty of diverse political parties. There's nothing unique about diversity just because we're Christians. But what is unique about the church is that it offers something bigger than diversity for diversity's sake. It's not even unity in diversity. But what what we see here is a new identity in diversity. A new identity that's big enough to, to celebrate our differences, that's big enough to, to, to encompass all the things that make us unique, and at the same time to give us something bigger, something that, that surpasses and unites and connects all of them. That's the unique hope of the gospel. And, and I'm going to be clear, like when that kind of stuff happens, when people from different backgrounds come together and form one church, it's not kumbaya, right? <laughs> it's not some perfect utopian society that gets formed there. Even though it's Christians, it's still hard. Because the work that God is doing, drawing sinners together, he's bringing people together with, with real differences, people together with real preferences. And oftentimes, real conflict takes place. As our church embraces this vision, we're not always going to see eye to eye. Sometimes we're going to have to sit down with one another and, and have a talk, have some hard conversations. Sometimes maybe you need to pull me aside and have a hard conversation. But when it's the Spirit of God at work, when it's the Spirit of God who makes us one people, then we have the resources to work through that stuff. 
In the gospel, we have the power to deal with those differences. And I think that is where the power of God is going to be revealed in us. As the world sees that, as the world sees us sticking together, loving one another, living together, working through those challenges, it's attractive. People in this community are going to be drawn to that. When we do that, Peter says, the Gentiles around us, though they might make accusations against us, though they may not be a fan of the things we we believe, eventually they're going to see our lives and glorify God. The way those guys put it, Tim Chester, he says, it's not simply this. Being a living church is not simply that that ordinary Christians like you and me, we, we live good lives, and then that enables us to invite people to some evangelistic event. But our lives become the evangelistic event. Our life together becomes the proof of God. A living community is powerful. Finally, uh, a living community is what we're here for. Okay? I really like talking about this stuff. I hope you're not like bored to death from me running through all these things, but this gets me excited. I love to think about this. I love to to look at what the church is and what it can be. I get excited thinking about what we could become here. And you know, I also, I get really excited just seeing what's happened already. Do you guys realize God has been really faithful to us? God has brought a, a wonderful community into existence already. And I think daily I see more and more of us becoming what we're meant to be. I've seen that that this stuff is not just theory, but it really is how God works. Folks, we've seen people come into this church from outside the doors. We've seen people come to faith and join this community. That's a really awesome thing. But it's not easy. I can admit that. It's not easy to be the church. It's not easy to live in these kind of relationships that require something of us. It certainly takes a lot more than than finding some big church where you can show up and and consume a service and go home and no one ever sees you again. It takes a lot. You know, I would even say it takes a total reorientation of our lives to live like this. It requires us to completely redefine how we think about ourselves. It requires us to see our identity as the church. That's who I am. I'm the church. I'm a part of the church. I belong to this people. If we're going to be that, if we are going to be a living community, if we're going to be a church that's alive in this neighborhood, if we're going to be the kind of church that people can see, where people are drawn to us, where people from all over this community come and join with us. It's not just some priorities that we're going to have to rework. It's not just a few things on our agenda that we're going to have to move around. But our whole identity has to change. Who we are has to transform. But here's the awesome thing. The gospel tells us that's not work that you have to do. That is work that has already been done for you, if you know Jesus. Verse 9, if you read it, you notice a lot of that's passive tense. That we are a people who have been chosen. 
He says that we are a people who have been called out of the darkness into his marvelous light. That means this new identity, this reorienting of ourselves, it doesn't come from us just working harder at it. It doesn't come from some new commitment to all of a sudden be churchier, right? It comes from God himself. That's the heart of the gospel message. It it says that apart from God, right, he has called us out of darkness. Apart from God, we lived in darkness. Apart from God, we live our lives as individuals who are desperately seeking some identity. And we try to build that identity on everything, don't we? We try to build it on our jobs. We try to build it through a relationship. We, we might try to build it through a political party. We might try to build it through pretty much anything and everything. We try to build a name for ourselves. But what happens? Well, sooner or later, you find out that those things can't define you. Either you, you reach the pinnacle, you achieve the thing that you've been searching for, and you realize it's not enough, or you miss the mark and you're consumed by the failure. You're consumed by by a lack of identity now. But Peter tells us, in Christ, God has called us out of darkness. In Christ, God has called us into his marvelous light. He's shown us that, that there is nothing on earth that is big enough to define us. There is nothing on earth that we can define ourselves by because we're not made for some temporary and perishable kingdom. But we are made to glorify God and to be a part of his people for all eternity. We're made for his kingdom, one that lasts forever. And on the cross, Jesus suffered in our place. He suffered for our false identity seeking. He he suffered uh, the punishment for us turning away from God so that we could find our true identity. It says here that that we're exiles and strangers and and sojourners. And the, the, the message of the gospel is that Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, was treated as a stranger. He was the one who was cut off so that we could be brought in to the family of God. And so that means for us something really simple, that that everyone who trusts in Christ, everyone who confesses their sins and turns to him as a savior, we're brought into a new reality. The change has been made. Once you are a loner trying to make a name for yourself, once you are an individual trying to make it on your own, but now you're a people. Now you are a people, and you have a purpose. Did you see what that purpose was? We are a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. That's what we're made for. Those yous are plural. (laughs) That together we can proclaim the excellencies of our God who's shown us what we're made for, who's shown us who we are. Church, 
That's who we are. We're God's people. Together, now, living ordinary lives. That's what we're here to do. And as we do that more and more, as that becomes who we are, we will display God's power in this neighborhood and we will see God's power in this church. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your church. And I thank you for the ways that over the years you have transformed my life and the lives of so many I've known by showing us what we were made for and who we belong to. Father, I know it is my deepest instinct to do it by myself, to handle things internally. And I thank you, Lord, that you knew better than me. So I pray, Lord, for everyone here in this room. I pray especially for those who come here feeling like an outsider. Those who come looking for a place to belong. Those maybe who have never known you before, Lord, I pray that they would come and find the identity that you've made them for. And I pray for this church, Lord. We are not there yet. We have a long way to go. But I'm encouraged, and I pray that you would continue to work. I pray you would make us the kind of church that's not a meeting. The kind of church that's a people. We pray in Jesus' name.